Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Danzig would ever do a song about our dog Georgie. <laughs> Georgie. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Georgie. Don't lick your butthole okay. in the house while we're cooking dinner. Exactly. <laughs> That's why you can't come record anymore. She's in the hallway. <laughs> Welcome to No Dogs in Space, everybody. I'm Marcus Parks. I'm Carolina Hidalgo. And here we are with the Extra large version of the Misfits Part Two, as promised. <laughs> as promised, this is going to be a big one. We got to go through all the rest of the Misfits career, and we're also going to talk about all the shit that happened afterwards. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> as best we can, because we can't lose flow. No, we cannot. But we're, we we're going to talk about it best we can. Yeah, because it is. We're going to focus on the music mostly. We'll we'll talk about the lawsuits. We'll talk about (laughs) the insanely complicated bullshit as well. Yes. So when we last left the Misfits, they had just claimed Halloween as their own, playing the first of a long string of shows held on the holiday that also saw the release of a single for the Romero-inspired song, Night of the Living Dead. The B-side to that single, however, held what would prove to be one of the Misfits' most popular and honestly most inspiring songs, at least when it comes to telling someone that you ain't no goddamn son of a bitch! Favorite lyric: The omelet of disease awaits your noontime meal. <laughs> Makes me hungry. Omelet of disease awaits your noontime meal. That's great. It's perfect. <laughs> well, less than a month after the Misfits released "Night of the Living Dead," they took the next logical step in the career of a late '70s punk band and traveled to England for what they thought would be a full tour. 
but unbeknownst to the misfits, they were about to become the latest victims of the curse of the damned. This fuck up. Curse <laughs> <laughs> of the damned. Curse of the damned. <laughs> well, the misfits they packed their bags and their toiletry kits <laughs> and kissed their moms goodbye because they're going on tour in England oh to God. open for the damned. Oh my God! Oh. But how much fun must have that been? Oh well. <laughs> They had booked the, the tour opening for the dam because earlier that summer, the Misfits opened for them at Haraz, and the guys got to talking to Dave Vanian, you know, the lead singer, mm-hmm. who said, yeah, that's a great idea. Come to the UK and open for us. Yeah. All right, everything's all set, right? <laughs> so the guys get there November 21st, and the next day, Glenn showed up to Dave Vanian's apartment. And like we said earlier in our series uh, we did on the Damned, when Glenn showed up to Dave's place to talk about the tour that was about to start... This was news to Dave. (laughs) So Dave calls up his manager and he's like, hey, we got to squeeze these guys in. I may have accidentally made drunk plans with the misfits in New York City. The misfits? (laughs) Who the fuck are the misfits? And he's like, just just make it work. Just make it work. So somehow they made it work. So the misfits opened for the damned on November 23rd in, in light. Leicester. Leicester. I almost got it. Almost. And you know what? It went pretty well. Like, even though Rat Scabies and Captain Sensible were, like, total dicks to the Misfits. I mean, they were making fun of Bobby because of his disability. But, you know, whatever. It was, like, during the damn idiot phase that we talk about a lot. In the, in the previous yes <laughs> in the, the, previous the series. Two, two series ago I oh, believe yeah yeah yeah, yeah. It's, yeah I'm starting to think that maybe a lot of these punk guys were fucking idiots when they were kids <laughs> <laughs> starting to see a trend going on here <laughs> so then at soundcheck for the next gig the misfits were like okay so do we get paid now or do you like send us a check how does this work and the dance manager said oh you're not getting paid oh. what but we're supposed to get a hundred bucks a gig. Why else would we come all the way here? And the guy's like, well, we didn't know you were coming. At least I didn't know you were coming. Yeah. And what's money anyway compared <laughs> to the currency of exposure? <laughs> it's been going on for a long time, folks. <laughs> yes. I am wealthy in exposure, apparently. All the shows. <laughs> so the Misfits walked off right there and said, you know, forget it. Yeah. And on their way out, Bobby turned and punched Captain Sensible in the face <laughs> and walked off. That's for being a dick to me about my disability, you asshole. Yeah, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, of course, all the guys that damned have grown up since then. Yeah, they even played together. The damned the Misfits last year. (laughs) 
I think they're fine now. Well, I mean, when we say, like, this is the curse of the damned, like, most likely what probably happened is that the damned, you know, at the time, Dave Vanian probably did go and tell their manager, like, hey, we talked to these guys, the Misfits. We really love their band. They want to come over to England. We got a tour coming up. We think that would be great. Take care of it. But as we know from the series on the damned, the damned changed managers every, like, three months for yeah. the first few years they were together, you know, and this was in a particularly tumultuous time for them because they were dealing with Algy, you know, all of his, fu- their bass player. They were dealing with his alcoholism and getting a new bass player and all that shit. So it's probable that the Misfits just got lost in the shuffle. When the old manager yeah. left, it's not like when the damned got a new manager, there was like an orderly transference of information and knowledge. No, no. <laughs> Between Rick and Doug Smith was their manager at that time who also managed Motorhead. I mean, he had his hands full with Motorhead and the damned. <laughs> believe me. Yeah, so most likely Dave Vinian did tell somebody about it, but by the time the Misfits came, like it was all it was all new management. So they just did didn't fucking know uh and the misfits got royally screwed on the deal and they had nothing to do like they had booked two weeks yeah <laughs> in in england in england like yeah. they had booked time for a tour so they're just hanging around london doing nothing <laughs> <laughs> and since they didn't have a hell of a lot to do danzig and bobby Steele decided to take in the london punk scene by attending a show with the rainbow featuring another of england's punk pioneers the jam Here's the thing about the Misfits in London, though, is remember when we talked about the Ramones and everybody in London being shit scared of the Ramones because they thought the Ramones were an actual street gang? Right, yeah. No one knew who the fuck the Misfits were. As far as the punks were concerned, I mean, I don't know this for sure, but as far as they were concerned, like British punks were concerned, Danzig and Bobby Steele probably look like a couple of fucking tourists. Yeah, you know what? That's probably true. Everyone's so busy posing. (laughs) (laughs) They look at these guys and like, who the fuck are these guys? Who the fuck do they think they are? They're just coming in. Where the fuck is New Jersey? (laughs) (laughs) We have an old Jersey. Uh, The oldest joke in the world. And since they didn't really have a reputation like the Ramones did, Glenn and Bobby got into an altercation with a couple of skinheads outside of the Rainbow, or maybe across the street, or maybe they didn't get into an altercation. There's a lot of conflicting tales. Oh, God! (laughs) Well, 
they had to kill time, like you said. So Glenn and Bobby went to go see the jam play it at the Rainbow on December 2nd, 1979. Except they didn't really see it. Uh-huh. <laughs> they didn't really see the jam. Oh, okay. <laughs> what happened is that Glenn and Bobby were having a few drinks across the venue for, you know, a little pregame. You know, what we do before every show we go to, yeah. Exactly. When Glenn said, hey, you see those skinheads over there? They're talking about us. <laughs> And Bobby's like, I, I don't see any skinheads, honestly. I just see people. That, well, I don't know what you're talking about. And Glenn's like, yeah, over there. I think they want to fight us. I'll show them what's what. <laughs> and Bobby, Bobby's like, okay, man, I'm just going to go get some food. Yeah. All right, I'll be back five minutes. And you know what happens. <laughs> Bobby comes back. He found Glenn outside the venue of the rainbow, crouched on the sidewalk, scraping a piece of glass against the sidewalk, sharpening it down, getting ready to fight. Was he fucking muttering to himself? What? <laughs> I'll show you. You fucking motherfucker. Goddamn, I'll fucking get it. Rise of frazzing. Yeah, he broke a cup and he just started making something. I don't know. Started wielding some weapons. <laughs> <laughs> and but at that moment right there a group of bouncers from the venue came running out. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean they grabbed Glenn and they were dragging him into the Rainbow Theater and Bobby just walked there and yeah. he's all he said was what's up, yeah. you know? <laughs> he didn't know what to do or what was going on in this whole scene. So he just he he looked at his food, his fish and chips and he just threw it at a bouncer's head. <laughs> Like that was going to do anything. And then, but you know, they shoved Bobby aside because he's like a hundred pounds soaking wet. Yeah. They took Glenn to jail. Well, of course. I mean, it's at, the, at this point, like, I think that girl had already been blinded at a damned show. Like, the people are starting to get serious about this shit. Like, yeah. there's a, especially in England, they're starting to get, it's like, oh, okay, there's a little guy threatening violence with a fucking glass bottle. Uh, get him the fuck out of here right now. Right. And Bobby was. You know, on the sidewalk being like, what do I do? My fish and chips are on the ground. (laughs) So he went to the police station to like help out Glenn. And also because Glenn had the band's money. Yeah, he can't buy more fish and chips. (laughs) (laughs) So he goes to the police station just there at the counter. He's like, hey, uh, can I just see Glenn for a minute? Just real quick. He has something for me. And they're like, no. Can I use your bathroom? No. It's a loo, by the way. (laughs) Wait, where's Jerry during all this? Jerry is with uh, Sid Vicious's mom, torn a <laughs> cathedral. Remember, they became friends. Yeah, that's him and, right. And Beverly. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, there's no one else for Bobby. <laughs> okay. So Bobby call, decides to call the U.S. embassy through a collect call. And, you know, back before cell phones uh, were a thing, there was collect call. If you guys remember, uh, if if you don't have money, you call collect, where the operator calls the number, and there's a recording. Like it says, "Hello, you have a collect fr- call from," and then you say, "Like Carolina." Yeah. But this time, it was, you have a collect call from, you gotta help us, this American, there he's in jail, and I think he's making weapons. And the U.S. Embassy refused to call. <laughs> of course. Of course, yeah. <laughs> Bobby was already drunk. This is what, It was like 2, 3 in the morning at this point. Ah, uh, wrong time to call the embassy. <laughs> <laughs> so Bobby thought hard, and he was like, hmm, I got a plan. It might just work. I'm going to get arrested, too. If I get myself arrested, I can sit with Glenn and get the money or do something. I don't know. We can figure out a way out of this bird. (laughs) (laughs) So he goes to the police station again, you know, thinking like, I'm just going to pee all over the place or something because they didn't let him use the loo. Of course. And but as soon as he walked in, one of the guards came out and started threatening him and like screaming at him. He's like, I told you not to come back. So Bobby spit in his face. And that's when like a bunch of cops just grabbed Bobby. 
and she's like grabbing him and like so Bobby's like all right the best thing to do is go limp yeah <laughs> so he did but they're still yelling at him they're like you're a yank Nixon's a crook <laughs> <laughs> and Bobby responds with like your queen's a whore <laughs> <laughs> oh that's oh, it oh, you're oh. coming with us <laughs> so how did his plan work out well he was put in a different jail cell <laughs> from Glenn good good but until the next morning where they were both put in the same holding tank you see they're sitting there waiting for like their court appearance and bobby goes hey i this is cool this is like a dungeon and glenn's like this is a holding tank whatever <laughs> but it sounds nice and echoey and then you know they so they start like kind of humming and like you know beating against their thighs and like and that song became london dungeon Certainly not the Misfits' toughest song. It feels- I don't want to be here in your British dungeon. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. No, it's a fun song. <laughs> now, the Misfits damn near got a pretty good consolation prize for their trip to the UK in the form of a tour supporting The Clash. Ooh. Which is pretty good. Fi- I mean, that's you can't do The Damned, you can do The Clash. But the entire deal was scuttled when drummer Joey Image, R.I.P., went back to America before an audition could be held. Yeah, Jerry said that the band was talking to a guy at CBS Records about putting the band on tour with The Clash. Mm-hmm. That would have been great. This guy, uh, they called him Derek, <laughs> because they vaguely remember this, actually helped out uh, Glenn and Bobby out of jail. Like, he bailed them out and stuff, and he put them in a hotel and everything, and said, like, let's get you an audition, except Joey left early. And a lot of guys said it's probably because he had a serious drug problem, uh. which he did at the time. And But in Joey's defense, he said he waited for weeks for a drum kit that was promised to him. And after weeks of just sitting in his hotel room, he was just fed up. So he, he just wanted to go home. He needed heroin. Ask Beverly Vicious. <laughs> he needed a drum kit. Uh, yeah. Yeah, the drum kit is pretty fucking important. Yeah. <laughs> so the guys came back home after spending nearly a month in the UK, losing a drummer, getting arrested, not getting paid at all, uh, and playing only one show. Yeah. And they had borrowed, I think it was like $3,000 from uh, Jerry Only's father to yeah. take this trip. Uh, and we had absolutely nothing to show for it. And Jerry Only paid that fucking debt back. Yes. Uh, so I can understand how there's a little, <laughs> little bit of tension in the band, just a little bit. So upon returning to New Jersey, the rest of the Misfits prepared the release of their next EP, Beware, 
the name of which was inspired by signs in the UK that said, Beware Bollards. It's like a maritime thing. You see those out near the Newtown Creek over here. To the Jersey boys that the misfits were, though, these sounded like legitimate warning signs notifying the public about a cryptid on par with the Jersey Devil. So the inside tour joke became the name of their next EP. That's great. <laughs> oh, the bollards. What the fuck is that fucking bollard here? <laughs> no one knows what a bollard is. Now, this release was the first appearance of the infamous song, Last Caress, which is the song that introduced the Misfits in this series. We've already played it twice in this uh, fucking podcast. Just do it another time. Yeah. It also happens to be one of the best splatter songs written from the perspective of the killer. Now, I'll defend Last Caress for a lot of reasons. One, the character Danzig sings as is about as classic of a splatter exploitation figure as you can get, on par with such over-the-top 70s horror characters in movies like Maniac, The New York Ripper, and The Last House on the Left. Second, if anyone thinks that the lyrics might somehow inspire violent action, I'm going to go ahead and say that in my many years of studying and discussing true crime, I've never found a killer who loves the misfits. And this is not a challenge. (laughs) In fact, killers and serial killers in particular mostly listen to shallow music with far less emotion. I'd actually say that passion, even of the I killed a baby today sort, makes a lot of these people uncomfortable because they just don't get it. Killers usually like their music to be paper thin. And to give you an idea, here's a medley that I put together that showcases the musical taste of a few of the killers that I've studied over the last decade on the other podcast I'm on, Last Podcast on the Left. was, in order, Katrina and the Waves, favorite of mass murderer Elliot Roger, Rick Wakeman, favorite of Dennis Nelson, a.k.a. the British Jeffrey Dahmer, Hootie and the Blowfish, favorite of New York City child killer Levi Aaron, Todd Rundgren, favorite of assassin Mark David Chapman, and Bad Company by Bad Company off the album Bad Company, famously loved by domestic terrorist Timothy McVeigh. Now, I could go on and on about this with a half dozen more examples. He really could, guys. <laughs> But what I'm trying to illustrate here is that none of those songs sound anything close to the Misfits, with the possible exception of Bad Company by Bad Company off the album Bad Company. And that's only because it has a similar categorical form as Black Sabbath by Black Sabbath off the album Black Sabbath. Naturally. (laughs) In other words, there's absolutely no connection whatsoever between listening to a song and committing a crime. 
Hell, even the black metal murders of the 90s were the acts of two sociopaths who would have found a reason to kill someone regardless of what they listened to. And one of those murders was extremely personal. I guess the overall point is that there's no difference between the Misfits and a damn good horror movie. And the Beware EP, comprised of songs that were all recorded for what was supposed to be the Misfits debut, is a hell of a fun exploitation ride. Who came along for the ride? Hey, you can't come inside. Do the citizens kneel for sex? Who's heaven coming on that chance? Certainly were the punk band that sang about jizz the most. <laughs> what's on my mind? I mean, their mind. Oh, wait. Now, the Misfits weren't ready to quit just yet after England. So to replace Joey Image, they brought in a guy from Jackson Heights, Queens. Queens, baby! Yeah, Jackson Heights, that's your birthplace. Yeah. This guy's name was Joey McGuckin. And he chose the no less ridiculous alias of Arthur Googie. Uh, I like Arthur Googie. <laughs> I love Arthur Googie. Hell, I like Joey McGuckin. Arthur Googie's great. <laughs> well, his first show with the Misfits, held in a venue called Exile out in Long Island City, was actually the last show with guitarist Bobby Steele, because Bobby was starting to lag behind the rest of the band when it came to dedication. Yeah, Bobby wasn't showing up for rehearsals or when the band went into the studio to record some tracks from their planned LP release. You know, the one that would later were from uh, three hits from hell and, and another attempt to release it. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. I, I can't get in the weeds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Bobby would show up hours late and unprepared. Like, a lot of times they had to get their producer or even Jerry's little brother, Doyle, to uh, do some of the, you know, Bobby's parts and overdubs and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So the guys were tired of his shit. Plus... Bobby was drinking a lot and doing a lot of drugs, which made him very, very unreliable. Oh, yeah. Remember, he apparently puked on uh, John Lennon's shoes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> so right before their big Halloween show, the band had like an idea of making like eight foot coffins that they would all like bust out of at the beginning of the show. It'd be really cool. And Bobby's like, oh, I have an idea. Why don't we fill those coffins with rats and then climb out of the coffin full of rats? <laughs> Real rats. Yes, live ones. And then they could <laughs> New York scatter City around. street rats. Yeah. <laughs> and the guys were like, okay, Bobby, uh, we're going to put a pin on that and <laughs> circle around later. <laughs> so right before their second annual Halloween show, Glenn called up Bobby and said, sorry, man, you're out of the band. Yeah. And Bobby's like, what, did you not like my rat idea? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, sure. Really? No, you idiot. You're not reliable. 
And you're drinking too much. <laughs> I get it. I was kicked out of a band for the exact same things that Bobby Image was kicked out for. And being I deserved- on the sauce too much? <laughs> being on the sauce and not being reliable. Yeah. The day I showed up, the fourth or fifth time I showed up to practice an hour and a half late, they were waiting with my cymbals in hand and said, you're out. Oh. And I get it. No, I yeah. fucking, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, Ivan. Thanks for listening <laughs> and, for a, staying, and for staying my friend after I fucked up so bad. It's a learning experience. <laughs> it was a very important learning experience. Yes. So Bobby quickly formed the undead with his buddies. And to show no hard feelings, Glenn agreed to finance their studio recordings to release the undead's EP on Glenn's record label, remember, Plan 9. Mm-hmm. So that aptly named EP, because Bobby lost a toe due to an infection <laughs> is called Nine Toes Later. It's really fucking good. Yes. Off of that EP, this is My Kind of Town. Donkey, I seen a horse. <laughs> <laughs> so Bobby and the band, they were cool until an article in Sounds Magazine reviewed the Undead's promo that uh, EP, uh-huh. and it said the Undead accomplished more in six months than the Misfits had in years. Ugh. Yeah. So according to Bobby, that's when it got real ugly. Yeah. You know, uh, Glenn decided not to release Nine Toes later because he said it sucks and I don't want it on my label. <laughs> I don't want to do it. <laughs> so, but it's okay because Bobby eventually got Stiff Records to release the EP after crashing a party hosted by Stiff. So that worked out. <laughs> or, of course, Stiff Records, the uh, the first uh, label to put out The Damned. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Stiff, very important. Yes. And then putting out The Undead and then going bankrupt like 10 minutes later, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> so the feud further escalated when the undead opened for the misfits at the Ritz at the Evil Live show on December 17th, 1981. Mm-hmm. So when the undead played, the misfits were heckling him from the balcony, especially when Bobby's band played Rat Fink, uh, which is a cover that uh, the misfits have played before while uh, Bobby was in the band. Ah, uh, I see. Because Bobby wanted to show that he could play it better. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> but when the misfits played... He would start heckling them, too. Ah, yes. So it was just a big thing. Like, you know, Bobby thought it was all punk rock fun. Yeah. Uh, but the Misfits, especially Glenn, took it seriously. It's serious. It seems like, yeah, you know, from what we were talking about in the last episode, you know, the but, you know, the or the last series, Handsome Dick Manitoba getting into the fight with Wayne County. It seems like no one really agreed upon what punk rock fun was. Or what funny is. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot in the early point. There's a lot of, it's just a prank, bro. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of that. Yes. <laughs> Quite a bit. So, to replace Bobby, the band brought in a guy who is still in the Misfits today. 
He was only 16 when he joined, but Jerry only thought that his little brother, Paul Doyle Kayafa, was the perfect fit for the band. Yes, Doyle. He was perfect because he was always helping out a lot. He looked up to his older brother and his older brother's friends. He was roading for them. And, you know, he soon learned how to play guitar thanks to his brother Jerry and Glenn helped him out too. So, you know, sure he was new, but he was reliable and willing to learn their style. Yeah, and he came up with the best name in the Misfits, Doyle Wolfgang von Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah, that came later. But but now he's it's Doyle. But no, yeah, at this point it's just Doyle. <laughs> Now, even though the Misfits were no longer what you call tight with the inexperienced Doyle on the guitar, remember Doyle's just 16, they still played the Monster Movie Club Halloween show in 1980, opening for one of Rock's original Creepsters. And this had to have been such a fucking great show. The Misfits opening for Screamin' Jay Hawkins. I put a spell on you. Because of mine. Stop the things you do <laughs> What's up? He was? Yeah, yeah, he was like blackout drunk. He doesn't even remember that. <laughs> One take. <laughs> that whole album is fucking great. I'd definitely recommend At Home with Screamin' Jay Hawkins. Now, speaking of Halloween, it was only a matter of time before the Misfits truly staked a claim on the holiday with a song of their own. The Misfits' take on Halloween was exactly what you'd expect. A bloody nostalgic romp through what we all believed Halloween was when we were all ooky spooky little boys and girls. And I don't know about you, but it certainly takes me back to the days when scaring old ladies with amateur gore makeup was the highlight of the fucking year. <laughs> the ladies wore amateur gore makeup? <laughs> I wore the amateur oh, gore yeah, makeup. <laughs> Although that would have been great. <laughs> Creepy crawly, creepy crawly. <laughs> you know, that Halloween single was dedicated to Susan Hannaford. Remember? She was the one who ran the Monster Movie Club with the guys. Oh, that's adorable. That's great. Yeah. That, that's very sweet. They handed it to her and everything, and she was just like, oh, 
you guys. <laughs> now, the reason why the Misfits were able to release single after single was twofold. One, Jerry Only's father was, in Jerry's words, supportive enough bankrolling the band in exchange for Jerry doing double shifts at the only family exacto knife factory. I mean, sometimes Jerry only would go out, play a show, come to the, come to the exacto knife factory at fucking dawn, wash off his punk makeup and then go to the fucking assembly line. Yeah. It's a family business. Yeah, of course. But the misfits were also supported both musically and financially by a former musician in Lodi who lived across the street from Doyle and Jerry. His name was George Germain, and his part in the Misfit story is somewhat lost to history. Yeah, there's really not much on George Germain, and maybe that's how he wanted it. Yeah. We're not quite sure, but, uh, you know, the static age recording sessions at CI Studios, George helped out with that. Yeah. And the horror business, 45, three hits from hell, and recording the Evil Live show at the Ritz, uh, Walk Among Us, and even some later Sam Haynes stuff, George did all that. Yeah. I mean, well, helping out and giving advice and and uh, providing equipment or repairing equipment. He was just kind of like their, their mentor in a way. Mentor, benefactor. Like, yeah, George Germain, without George Germain, like a lot of the Misfits music probably wouldn't have ever been released. They probably wouldn't have gotten as far as they did. This is the guy that kind of gave him the extra little push. But yeah, he was contented to kind of hang back in the shadows. Yeah. I mean, he's he was very important, very instrumental to the Misfits at this stage. Yeah. And yeah, he was friends with the uh with jerry and doyle uh danzig not so much well not later <laughs> later he had some choice words to say about danzig but he always loved jerry and doyle pretty much calling him his kids yeah yeah that's very sweet yeah the music's full of guys like that like just guys in the background that just want to help out the kids now once doyle came into the band the kaiafa brothers spent a little too much time partying and owing to what danzig saw was a lack of dedication in the main project he released his first solo single based on an older Misfit song called Who Killed Marilyn? The Secret Service. <laughs> well, if you listen to Danzig. Oh, okay. <laughs> Go to bed. about the Kennedys a lot. Yes, he does. <laughs> you know, George financed and produced uh, this solo, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, because he thought it was a great song. And the Misfits recorded the song earlier, but Glenn said the other guys in the band didn't really care to release it. He's, he was a little frustrated that they weren't as enterprising yeah. as he was. I think the guys wanted to take like a minute to reap their rewards. You know, while Glenn was like a workhorse, like, what's next? Yeah, always. Like, that is the thing about Danzig. You can't say Danzig is not a hard fucking worker. Yes. Like that, I mean, and, and a hustler. Yes. Like, he's always hustling, always recording, always asking what's next. Yeah, and so he's released that single on August 5th, 1981, Marilyn Monroe's Death Day. <laughs> real, real classic. Real classic. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> hey, he's asking the tough questions. Yes, yes, he is. <laughs> But even though Danzig was starting to release his own songs, allegedly playing all the parts... That's what he says. That's what he says. Other people say different. The Misfits still managed to pull off their first full-length album. Five years 
after Static Age was supposed to be released by Mercury Records. That album, which was cited as a huge influence on everyone from campy horror bands like Guar and White Zombie, Guar, White Zombie, Guar, <laughs> to countless musicians in the hardcore punk and speed metal scenes, that album was Walk Among Us. This album came out in March of 1982, and as we know from our series on The Damned, most of the early punk bands had already moved on to other styles by then, especially the British bands. But the Misfits, like the Ramones, were holding on to punk as hard as they could, and they definitely didn't stop with the horror. This was evidenced most on songs like Vampira, Devil's Whorehouse, and the insanely fast live track, Mummy. Can I go out and kill tonight? Why don't I both sing on like the kids who are made to me? Can I go out and kill tonight? Done with some well placed haze. <laughs> but even if some of the songs on Walk Among Us, like that one, bordered on speed metal, the Misfits still had some catchy fucking songs on this album. The most notable example was a song inspired by a low budget late 60s John Carradine horror film with the same name called Astro Zombies.
Yeah, you want hand claps? Go for the Ramones. You want woes? Go for the Misfits. Lots of woes. <laughs> Whoa! Yeah! <laughs> I love it. Now, after Walk Among Us was released to rave reviews, the Misfits immediately went on a West Coast tour with a different band called the Undead. It wasn't Bobby Steele's Undead. It was, no, it was this was just Sid Terror's Undead. Sid Terror's Undead. They also went out with a hardcore band called Jody Foster's Army, aka JFA, and the wonderfully weird Flesh Eaters. Saxophone in there. <laughs> so Chris D from the Flesh Eaters mm-hmm. that we just heard the wonderful weird <laughs> sex. I love him. He was running Ruby Records, which is an offshoot from Slash. Yep. Because Glenn wrote to Slash Magazine about getting their band to you know get a write up or something, and they offered to release their record under their smaller label. Yeah, we're it was on perfect. on Ruby. Yeah, it's fucking great. Yeah, it was like a one off, like kind of like a we're gonna put this out and see what happens. So Christy and Glenn, they get together in L.A. in January 1982 to remix the songs the band recorded a year earlier. And Glenn also took the liberty to overdub some of the vocals and some say guitar Ah. on some of the songs. Well, I guess that makes sense because Bobby Steele was no longer in the band. Yeah. And when it was all done, they released Walk Among Us in March of 1982. So they did it. They did it. They released their first full-length album <laughs> after five years of being in a band. Finally. Woo! Finally. I mean, there were there were some other record labels that they were thinking of going with. They were thinking of going with IRS Records, uh, which the Cramps had released their first record on uh, IRS. But yeah, but they're like, Slash is like, don't go with them. They suck. Yeah, they suck. Yeah, they're more... I well, don't know. I, at that, <laughs> I don't... Well, at that point, the IRS is probably more focused on the Go-Go's. Right. Like, they got, like the Go-Go's first album was getting released, I think, around that time. Yeah, and I with, think like, later we... they got R.E.M., so yeah, they were busy. Yeah, they were they are absolutely busy. And the Cramps also had some horror stories with IRS as well, which we'll get into when we do our series on the Cramps, which is coming up very soon. Yes. Hi Max, I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful, but we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Now that tour... That I was just talking about the one with Undead, the one with JFA, the one with the Flesh Eaters. 
there was one more band on that tour that when you just read the bill doesn't make much sense if you don't know the history of this band. I'm talking about the Meat Puppets, who most of you probably know better as the men who lent their songs to Kurt Cobain for Nirvana Unplugged. Many a hand that scaled grand old face of the plateau Some belong to strangers and some folks you Holy ghosts and talk show hosts are planted in the sand To beautify the foothills and shake the many hands There's nothing on the top but a bucket and a mop and an songs were off their second album. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking like, I like this version. <laughs> but the Meat Puppets album before the one that had Plateau, Oh Me, and Like a Fire, all the songs that Nirvana covered for Nirvana Unplugged was something much closer to a purposefully grating hardcore band with a country edge, recorded in a style that could more politely be described as Challenging. <laughs> the first Meat Puppets album is very challenging. Carolina in the first grade, she was, let's see, challenging. Well, perhaps this purposeful annoyance combined with their country and western twinge was why, when the Meat Puppets opened for the Misfits in San Francisco in April of 1982, the audience hated the Meat Puppets. And that animosity set the stage for the disaster to come Later that night. Not saying it's the Meat Puppets' fault. No. It's not the Meat Puppets' no. fault. But there was something in the air. Yeah. <laughs> for possibly the Misfits' biggest fuck-up ever. It was... Not possibly. Is the Misfits' <laughs> biggest fuck-up ever. <laughs> so this show, yes. The show was packed. It, it, uh, packed with a testy audience of about a thousand people. And the Meat Puppets left right after their set because it was so rough. They're like... Fuck this. We're getting out of here. Yeah. So this is April 10th, 1982 at the Elite Club, which is now the Fillmore. No shit. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> ah. Ah. <laughs> and as soon as the Misfits hit the stage, the audience already hated their whole setup. Yeah. You know, the outfits, the horror themed act. I mean, these are guys in like vans and like T-shirts and stuff. They're like, who the fuck are these guys? West Coast scene was much different, you know, especially, yeah. especially in the early 80s and especially in San Francisco. It was a totally different scene than what the Misfits were used to. Yeah, that's true. I mean, like, imagine them in, like, plaid and, like, maybe even buzz cuts or, the, you know, no hair or anything. And then in comes in, like, Jerry and Glenn with their hair all the way, like, a foot up high. <laughs> <laughs> or the fucking, the devil lock, the, the, the devil studs lock. on the fucking show, on the shoulder pads. The platform shoes. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, hey, this is Doyle Wolfgang von Frankenstein. And San Francisco's like, oh, give me a fucking break. <laughs> yes. So the Misfits got pelted with beer cans and bottles. like, Well, like the other bands. But these guys, the Misfits, were determined not to let the audience get away with it. Mm -hmm. Glenn was yelling really shitty things to the crowd like, I can see why they call this the land of homos. Yeah. Or the city of buttfuckers. <laughs> the city of buttfuckers. <laughs> All across the land. <laughs> That's so okay. stupid. It's so dumb. Yeah. <laughs> it's so fucking dumb. And he made the situation a lot worse. Of course he did. Yes. And then they made it worse than that. 
You see, a few songs into their set, Arthur Googie got up from his drum kit and jumped into the audience, like just roaring with punches. And, well, unfortunately, he was taken down pretty easily. Yes. <laughs> so Jerry and Doyle's brother, you know, Ken, uh, a.k.a. Rocky, who was like kind of running the sound and everything and roading for them, ran over to help him out there. He's like, Googie, get out of here. You know, you're too small for this. <laughs> <laughs> and right around then, Doyle got hit in the face with a full beer can, like right there, right, right in his nose. Yeah. And that's when Doyle turned turned around and hit a kid in the head with his guitar, like smashed it really hard, right on top. The guitar broke on this kid's head. There was blood everywhere. And that's what started the riot at the show. And Doyle's a big fucking guy. Yes. Doyle is huge. So the force that that man could have with a guitar is uh, insane. Imagine breaking a guitar. That's fucking crazy. And the worst part, that poor kid, Tim Sutliff, he was just hanging out there next to the stage. According to the lead singer of JFA, he wasn't instigating anything. He was just at the wrong place at the wrong time. Doyle just wanted to cause some violence. I think he was trying to prove something. Yeah. I don't know. I could see that, yeah. So the band got off stage and locked themselves in the cream room while a riot <laughs> broke out. Security eventually got the audience out of the venue, but some of the kids waited outside for hours trying to get to the band because they wanted blood. Yeah, I mean, San Francisco punks are fucking tough. Yes. Very tough. And they don't put up with that shit. No. Like, they don't like homophobia and shit. Like, they do not put up with that. Yes, and that kid, Tim, he was like 14, 15, the one who got hit by Doyle's guitar. He was hospitalized and suffered massive brain trauma. Like, they said even years later, he would pick, like, a piece of a guitar out of his head. Christ. Doyle should have been arrested. He, yeah. sh- he should have, I mean, I don't know if he should have gone to fucking prison because he was still underage at this point. Like, Doyle was, what, 17? Yes, he yeah, was. Yeah, yeah, he was like 17, but yeah, there should have been some fucking consequences for that. Oh, absolutely. Are you kidding me? He has a weapon in his hand. Yeah. And so that's the thing is that the Misfits came away from the show with a, uh, a an assault, <laughs> a, a serious assault, and a reputation as being serious fucking homophobes, like being uh, saying some really awful shit. Yeah, they were not welcomed in San Francisco ever again. And they actually never came back to play San Francisco after that. Yeah, and Glenn doubled down on that shit. Like when he was asked about when the Misfits were asked about what happened at the San Francisco show uh, in a later interview, like he doubled down and said even more awful homophobic comments. Like he just fucking kept going with it and kept fucking doubling down. And the rest of the Misfits are like, yeah, okay, all right. Yeah, (laughs) like, uh, okay, But like just Glenn just kept fucking going. And we'll fully acknowledge that Glenn has made homophobic comments even since then, saying in the 90s that his depiction of Wolverine, remember we said that he was thinking of, they were thinking about casting him as Wolverine in the fucking X-Men movie? He said that his Wolverine would have been, quote, less gay. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck that means. I, I don't know. But... What, yeah. Uh, would that yeah. make it worse? Yeah. I, <laughs> I don't know. You know, and Jerry only has certainly come out in recent years saying that the Misfits welcome everyone, even stating in 2014 that a Misfits reunion would only happen if Danzig, quote, left the dark shit at home. But considering how the Misfits have, spoiler alert, reunited for a couple of shows in recent years, and that combined with the testimonials of people who have talked to Danzig about those San Francisco comments, he at the very least privately regrets that shit, even though I'm willing to bet he will never publicly address his comments. No, probably not. 
That was years later when he was in Sam Hain. Uh, a club promoter named Greg Orpeza said that when he heard that Sam Hain was going to play at Club Culture, the club that he was working at, he was totally against it. He's like, no, you cannot have these guys. Do you remember San Francisco a few years back? But then Glenn came up to Greg and they had a talk. They sat by the river with a beer and Glenn said to him, listen, that night was the worst night of my life. It, it went way too far and I deeply regret it to this day. Yeah. So at least that was, at the very least, that was a good talk for them. And and even Arthur Googie said it was regrettable and kind of his fault because he started it by just jumping into the audience. You know, he should have kept playing, he said, after he got hit with a full beer can or just walk away. Yeah. You know, the responsibilities of an entertainer. Of course. And, you know, I mean, if you haven't noticed by now, the only truly clean man in rock is Weird Al Yankovic. Yeah. <laughs> and if you want to listen to Weird Al, hell yeah, bro. If you want to only listen to Weird Al, you know what? Fuck, man. I got weeks where I do the same. You know, where I'm just like, it's fucking Weird Al time, and that's all we're doing this week. But many musicians from the 50s to the 80s and the 90s, and even now, you know, people like Iggy Pop, Marvin Gaye, David Bowie, Eric Clapton, James Brown, Jerry Lee Lewis, Jimmy Page, Mick Jagger, Chuck Berry, and yes, Glenn Danzig were horribly flawed creatures in a lot of ways. And those guys did and said a lot of fucked up shit. That fact, though, does not change that all of those men were also all huge parts of the history of music in the 20th century. And all of them have direct influences on the music still being released today. Whether it's through style or sample, all of those guys are a big part of music history. Yeah, and we only just named a few. (laughs) I cut the list down. Oh, you had to cut it down. (laughs) Cut it down. But back in the early 80s, when it comes to the Misfits, the infamous San Francisco debacle was only one of the Misfits' many problems, specifically between Danzig and Googie. And it all came to a head on April 15th, 1982, at a fucking McDonald's of all places. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was their favorite place to eat when they're on the road. Of course. It was McDonald's. Course. Like, the Ramones were, it was a uh, Cracker Barrel. A uh, Cracker Barrel. <laughs> really? The Ramones' yeah. favorite restaurant was Cracker Barrel? Yeah. <laughs> they would get free meals by handing out, like, you know, autographs and shit like that. <laughs> That's funny. So, Googie and Glenn, they haven't been getting along lately. Mm-hmm. So, Glenn was in charge of the band, and everyone got that, but these guys didn't like being treated like minions. Yeah. You know, I, I feel like Glenn was kind of micromanaging a little bit and maybe all that frustration gave way at the golden arches (laughs) (laughs) because according to legend Arthur Googie wanted to have two cheeseburgers instead of one (laughs) and Glenn wouldn't let him it's like that's number two right in the meal board number two is two cheeseburgers (laughs) but maybe in 1982 it's not yeah and I know the men and Jerry I got to pay all this shit back. If he wants two cheeseburgers, let him have two cheeseburgers. No. He only gets one. All right? We're not making a lot of money. This Walk Among Us tour is not a success at all. It's a financial failure. And uh, no, to make us pull through, just just eek by, just eek by just a little bit, we're going to save 44 cents. And we're going to just... Give him the one cheeseburger. And that's when Googie got so pissed off. He said, I quit the band. After this California tour, I'm done. Yeah. All on fucking principle. Yeah. Well, I mean, eventually, just, you know, tensions rise. Yeah. I mean, there's always a last straw. And th- and then, of course, it's like, oh, the, the, mach- the ice cream machine is broken. What? <laughs> 
Not today, out of all days. Why? I can never get a McFlurry. <laughs> Love so, the McFlurries. Everyone loves the McFlurries. I'm partial to the apple pies myself. Oh, yeah, good yeah. one. So after the fight, Googie finished out the Walk Among Us tour, playing three more shows with the band. Unfortunately for him, though, leaving meant missing out on meeting Myla Nurmi, a.k.a. Vampira. Well, he could have met her. He just didn't want to hang out with these guys anymore. Myla Nurmi, of course, Vampira. Yes, from yeah. the Vampira show. And also she was in Ed Wood's Plan 9 from Outer Space. Yep, yes. She fantastic, was... classic movie. It is not the worst movie of all time. No, it is not. It's great. It's... <laughs> the Misfits wrote a song about her in the aptly named song Vampira. Yep. It makes sense. And they got to meet her while they were in California. So she came by when the guys did like an in-store appearance at a record store on Melrose. Uh, there's a famous picture of Mylon Normie with the guys where you can see Jerry only just loving it. <laughs> he's beaming. His arm around her. Oh, he's like, I'm touching her. <laughs> but that day was actually the last day where Googie would play with the Misfits later that night at uh, Al's Bar. Al's Bar, the famous Al's Bar. You know, the original rock and roll club of, of L.A. That it's, it's gone now, unfortunately. Of but, course. you know, bands like The Fall, Social Distortion, uh, Nirvana played there, and The Misfits. Of course, and The Misfits. <laughs> and that was Googie's last show. He was in the band for two years, a long time in drummer years. <laughs> he always worked hard. He did a great job. He showed up on rehearsals, on time, studio recordings, everything. He, even though he lived in Queens and worked a full-time job, he still was always there for the band, so hats off to the inspiring, oddly named <laughs> Arthur Googie. Yeah, and after Arthur Googie left the Misfits, like he actually joined one of the more solid hardcore bands yeah. of the early 80s. They're fucking great. I I gotta admit, like I, I'm not gonna pretend I've been a fan of this band forever. This is a new discovery no, for me. Since Monday. Yeah, since Monday. Uh, they're fucking great. They're called Antidote. Check it out. That whole, uh, well, it's more of an EP, but yeah, Thou Shalt Not Kill, Antidote, go check it out, 1983, uh, clocks in at 9 minutes, 20 seconds. It's fucking... Whoa! <laughs> it's so good. so fast. <laughs> now, to replace Googie, the Misfits very briefly brought in a guy named Todd Swalla, whose main gig was playing in the first band signed to Touch and Go Records, one of the most important independent labels ever. And of course, they started out releasing Hardcore Punk. Out of Maumee, Ohio, this is Necros.
it's time Hardcore Punk made a bit of a comeback. They should. <laughs> Today. <laughs> so with Todd Swalla playing double duty with both the Misfits and Necros, the two bands played a show featuring a band who, like the Meat Puppets, started off as punk, but moved on to something altogether different. Back in 1982, they sounded like this. They sync up better later. <laughs> yep. Yep. Pretty soon after that, the band changed genres completely. And within a decade, they would be one of the most popular, yet still most respected bands in the world. And my favorite band growing up. Yep. Ch- check it out. <laughs> <laughs> you know this fucking band. Yeah. <laughs> fucking beastie boys love the beastie boys <laughs> who doesn't love the fucking beastie boys they, they, they truly are one of those bands that's just fucking universal yeah now this show held at irving plaza was the site of yet another interband flare-up although the instigator this time was a former member during the misfits first song bobby Steele started hurling full cans of beer from the balcony again <laughs> You know, even Glenn, even Glenn said, like, with that whole San Francisco riot craziness, he even said, like, I think Bobby sent some of his friends. Uh-huh. Like, he's like their arch nemesis right now. <laughs> right now. I mean, that paranoia is somewhat justified. Because, yeah, like, fill-in drummer Todd Swallow, he was hitting the fucking face with a full beer can that Bobby Steele threw from the balcony at Irving Plaza. And, you know, like, we've gone to a lot of shows at Irving Plaza. That's fucking, that is a Far distance. Quite an arm. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, after uh, they saw that it was Bobby Steele, the Misfits' personal bouncer went up and threw him out into the fucking street. I heard him. He threw him down the stairs. Those are are some big fucking stairs. (laughs) (laughs) So pretty soon after the Irving Plaza conflict, the Misfits returned to California to play a show in Santa Monica. This show ended up being recorded and released as the Eva Live EP, through the Fiend Club. That's, of course, the Misfits uh, fan club. Yes. And who should have been in the audience but a young Henry Rollins. Oh, Henry. Henry. Henry Garfield. (laughs) His middle name really is Garfield? His last name is Garfield. That's his real last name? Yes. I didn't know that. Yeah, like the president. Yeah. From a long time ago. Yes, I know. In the shirt that I'm wearing right now that has Garfield and a black flag logo on it, now it makes a lot more sense. That makes sense. (laughs) 
So Henry Rollins, famous for being the lead singer of Black Flag. Uh, well, the fourth and last lead singer, but the most famous one, I guess. Mm-hmm. And also because, you know, he's written tons of books, uh, lots of storytelling. He's a stand-up comedian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and also he's famous for being Henry Rollins. Yeah, he's just a... He's and Henry Rollins is also. I mean, he was responsible for bringing a lot of music that might have been forgotten to the forefront, like, like suicide, like suicide, exactly. Like you know, he you know is a big fan of the Damned, bringing Machine Gun Etiquette to uh, the fucking forefront to like to show people like, hey, it's more than just neat, neat, neat. Like check out Machine Gun Etiquette's fucking great album. Uh, yeah, I mean, Henry Rollins is uh, he's one of the most well known voices, uh, and as far as like the history of punk goes, yes, and, and a great fucking lead singer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's fantastic. So Henry's band, Black Flag, were playing that night at a venue downstairs while the Misfits were playing upstairs. But before the show, Henry was napping in the green room, uh, just waiting for his own sound check. And he was like listening to someone else's sound check while he was kind of like trying to like doze off a little bit. He heard a Misfits song and he's like, oh, that's cool. It's coming from the stage area. And then he heard another one and another one. So he like walked over there. He's like, who's playing all these Misfits songs? <laughs> oh, right. It's the Misfits. <laughs> and he was just like, holy shit. It's it's them. Like, I've been a fan for years. He was such a huge fan. He's got a fucking Misfits. He's got two Misfits tattoos. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so they met and they did the whole, you know, hey, did we just become best friends? <laughs> like, they got along great. Yes. Henry and Glenn do get along together wonderfully. <laughs> so that that night, that show, November 1981, the Misfits showed the Plan 9 movie. Like, they would put, like, a sheet that they could just, like, go through. Yeah. So they would burst through the screen and play to, like, a really, like, roaring energetic crowd. <laughs> so Glenn singled out Henry during the show, and he's like, hey, come out here and, and sing with us. So he sang, we are 138 with the Misfits. And it was recorded. Thing was, though... Is like Henry Rollins was a big Misfits fan. Yes. But did not know the lyrics to the verse of We Are 138. Well, to be fair, I do just know We Are 138. Yeah, we all, that's how we all are. Yes, (laughs) that's how we all are. Uh, So, but it was recorded. And we actually have Henry Rollins singing at least the chorus to We Are 138 and doing his best on the verses. Oh, yeah. We are 138. <laughs> it's good improv. It's just, yeah, I know. It's like, what, what do I do? Like, yeah, it's hardcore. It's energetic. <laughs> what did you say yesterday that it sounded like? Lucille Ball. Every time some shit goes down on wow. the I Love Lucy show, she just looks at the camera and goes, wow. And Henry Rollins, too. Yeah. Now, since Henry and Glenn were now friends... Presumably forever. <laughs> I said, see what you did there. <laughs> what did uh, what did Henry Rollins say? Glenn Danzig thought about Henry and Glenn forever, the comic book. Oh, he said uh, Glenn doesn't have a wild birth of humor. <laughs> he was being honest. Being very honest. And since the Misfits were in need of a permanent drummer, Henry Rollins suggested Black Flag's former drummer, 
Julio Roberto Valverde Valencia, a.k.a. Robo. whole three months just listening to black flag yeah that was that was really fun but <laughs> after a while i had to put it away for a minute it's pretty fucking intense yeah. yes <laughs> robo he's from uh, cali colombia ah yeah that's where my family's from that's right yeah and he came to the u.s on a student visa in 1975 and stayed even a little bit after it expired <laughs> maybe just a little bit yeah he's like i live here now <laughs> So he joined Black Flag a few years later, and he played on uh, Jealous Again and Six Pack EPs, and as, as well as the LP Damaged, mm-hmm. which I love. Yeah. Yeah, all favorites of mine. Yeah. <laughs> as we know. As we know. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> then in 1981, after finishing their Black Flag UK tour, Robo was detained and not allowed to fly back to the U.S. because of his visa. Ah, uh, he didn't think about that, did he? D- he did not realize. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's because it's the early 80s. Maybe yeah. it's different rules yeah. back then. Yeah, maybe he thought he could sneak past. But he's not documented in the U.S., yeah. so that was an issue. So, you know, Black Flag, they couldn't help him, so they had to replace him, like, almost immediately. They had a lot of responsibilities. They had a, lot of, they had a tour set up. Yeah, exactly. So a year later, when the Misfits needed a drummer... And Robo was finally back in the U.S. after sorting out that whole snafu. (laughs) Henry suggested Robo. Yeah. So with Robo in the band, the Misfits went into the studio to record what would be their last album with Glenn Danzig, Earth A.D. Yeah. Yeah. think maybe Black Flag got a bit of an influence on that? <laughs> That's Earth After Doomsday. Oh. I was wondering what the AD was all about. I don't know. Ask Will Smith. <laughs> 
Remember that movie? After Doomsday? No, it's called Earth AD. Oh, I, I did. I have no idea. I'd never heard of that movie. I know. No one saw it. <laughs> it bombed. I think he had his son. It, it doesn't matter. Oh, that one. Yeah. Yeah, that's now I the remember. One. That's the one. <laughs> so, Earth AD. The album, uh, which Glenn said he financed himself from uh, selling a lot of Misfits stuff. No yet. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that that's easy. I guess still DIY. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Misfits pretty much never stopped being DIY, at least when Glenn Danzig was in the band. Right. And, yeah, this was the last original Misfits album. It came out December 12, 1983 on the Plan 9 label. Mm-hmm. Still there. And recorded over a period of two years here and there. So it took a while, of course. And one of the times they recorded, they recorded their instrumentals in October uh, after a show. Uh, they actually recorded it with Spot, who was like the engineer for Black Flag. Who, he did a lot of Black Flag stuff and the Minutemen and Descendants. So they worked with Spot on this. So it was, it was a little bit of a different dynamic. Mm-hmm. And also because Glenn was asleep for most of the recording. <laughs> well, I mean, they just played a show. Yeah, they, they played two shows, apparently. Yeah. And uh, they spent the entire night doing these instrumentals, like, till eight in the morning. Uh, Glenn woke up to sing, like, some parts here and there. Uh, he's like, I'll finish my vocals when we get to New Jersey. It's fine. <laughs> sleepy time. And, uh, so, yeah, Black Flag hooked him up pretty well with that. I mean, because the, the, the studio place was a giant concrete garage that you know so you could get all that feedback in the guitars that you could hear yeah in uh, earth ad and jerry said it sounded like motorhead on speed but not in a good way <laughs> <laughs> he's like he had glenn remixed it and just took out all the f- aggression all the fun out of it and you know what yeah nobody really likes the earth ad album i mean in the band yeah uh, even glenn was like it just sounds like one long song yeah and it, yeah, it does. There yeah. are a few great songs, but listening it from the beginning to end can uh, get a little tedious. It's a, yeah, it's tedious. It's a little. It's very sameish yes. throughout. So around the time of the first recording session for Earth AD in October of 1981, the Misfits played a show at Tupelo's in New Orleans. And being the spooky boys they were, they couldn't help but make a visit to one of New Orleans' most famous graves, that of voodoo legend. Marie Laveau. Yes. That was uh, October 1982. After a show, they decided to check out the the St. Louis Cemetery, Mm -hmm. the famous one. Yes, the famous St. Louis Cemetery, of course. We went to it. Yeah, well, we went to number two, as did the Misfits. Yes. Actually, they did. (laughs) They were looking for number one. Yeah, well, we didn't want to- Marie Laveau was. Well, we didn't want to pay the fucking $20 to get into number one. Per person. That's insane. So, yeah, but number two, the way it's set up is that St. Louis Cemetery's number one and number two are within walking distance of Bourbon Street. Like, they're just maybe a five-minute walk away. Uh, And number two is a little bit further down. Uh, But it was nighttime, and the Misfits didn't know the difference between number one and number two. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they'd never really been to New Orleans. So, like, they they had their friends from the show. They were like, oh, come with us. You know, come check out Marie Laveau's tomb. And they're like, okay, great. So they head over there. They get there. They bring some beers. They hop over the fence because it was late. It was, like, one in the morning. And the cemetery was obviously closed. So they start walking around, you know, misfits. Like, there was, like, maybe, like, 20 of them. And they're walking around having a good time. But... Pretty quickly, though, the cops came. Yeah. It was, like, so fast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, now but cemetery number two is, like, there's not... There's some 
houses around there. Uh, okay, now I remember. Yes, there's a lot of houses around number yes. two. <laughs> we walked through a neighborhood after we left number two. Yeah, <laughs> so it was, yeah, I could see people calling the cops on these fucking punk kids real fast. And the cops come and look, there are all these guys, like, in. they're still in their outfits, their performance gear. They still have, like, paint on their faces, you know, <laughs> and, and they're just walking around being like, uh, where is that tomb that we were talking about? <laughs> <laughs> so people like when the when the cops came and the searchlights were they're just like looking for them people are just starting to scatter of course 18 people were arrested but luckily like uh, I think the ne- the necros got away yeah so hey good for them <laughs> <laughs> one guy who who was arrested he said that the cops were really rude and shitty just asking them like what what are you here doing the satanic stuff yeah are, are, are you gonna dig up her grave or something it's like <laughs> do we look like we have shovels <laughs> no we just wanted to go and have a beer and just check it out yeah but they all got arrested charged with criminal trespass they spent the night in jail uh, Ken you know Jerry and Doyle's brother bailed him out. Uh, the funny thing is a story that I think Doyle says is that when Ken went in with the bail money, it was like, all right, get out, Glenn. All right, Jerry. And then he's like looking around. He's like, oh, shit, I don't have any money for Robo. <laughs> Sorry, Robo. And the guy's, Sorry, Robo. <laughs> and it was like, fuck it. There was a headline the next day, like punks arrested in St. Louis Cemetery number two. Yeah, during the ritual. <laughs> During a human sacrifice, who knows? <laughs> and uh, well, they skipped their like their bail bond uh, mm-hmm. because they had to do a show the next day. So, but a month later, they did go to like their court appearance, and they were fined a few hundred dollars. And you know, just an older judge guy being like, "And stay out," yeah, you know that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. So around the time that the Misfits went in for the second studio session for Earth AD, they returned to Santa Monica to play a show with Black Flag because by this time. Black Flag was one of the few punk bands that the Misfits hadn't burned bridges with. Yeah. And usually those bridges were burned because Glenn Danzig took everything personally when it came to dealing with other bands. When the Dead Kennedys released a song called Halloween after the Misfits released their song about Halloween, Danzig called them assholes. Okay, remember when we said that the Misfits owned Halloween? We did not mean that literally. <laughs> yeah, we mean like it was like the, if the Misfits wanted to do the Misfits can do a show on Halloween whenever they want and it's yes. great. It'd be a, lot, a very fun time. No, they did not. But Glenn, there's other shows also going on on Halloween. Yes, and there's other band other bands can do fucking songs called Halloween. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. And also, like, the Cramps and the Ramones, like, they were both fucking persona non grata uh, because they had refused to share concert billings in the late 70s when they played shows with the Misfits, which is understandable because back then, the Ramones were massively more popular than the Misfits. So the Ramones didn't want to play with the Misfits? Well, no, the Ramones were fine playing with the Misfits, but but the Ramones didn't want to put the Misfits, like on the flyer co-headlining oh yeah <laughs> you want to be like the Ramones and the Misfits <laughs> fucking nobody knew. the Misfits were an opening band you know but Glenn took it personally uh, same with the Cramps but Black Flag was back then they were pretty much at the same level of popularity as the Misfits so the Misfits chose them as a buddy band and Black Flag chose the Misfits as a buddy band and at that Santa Monica show their biggest to date the Misfits apparently fucking killed it yeah, there was like 3,000 people there. Biggest show they'd ever played. Jeez. And the, yeah, and everyone from Black Flag actually came up and did a, like a little reunion and everything, like Ron Reyes and, and Descadena. Like, it was so cool. Yeah, it was a great show. I would love to have seen it. But following the show, Glenn started talking to Henry, Henry Rollins. 
and told him that he was pretty much at the end of his rope when it came to playing with specifically Jerry and Doyle, saying that Jerry and Doyle were more interested in the New York Giants than horror. (laughs) (laughs) Where are you Giants from? New York. All hail the New York Giants. <laughs> I, just, I just did a, 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 It's from a movie called Madagascar. Ah, I see. I used to work with children. <laughs> and also, like Jerry and Doyle, they were vibing more with Van Halen than the fucking victims. If you get what I'm saying, they loved Van Halen. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, and they were into all that like heavy metal stuff, like the more popular heavy metal stuff at the time. Yeah, it was like Van Halen all the time. Imagine Glenn just sitting in the back between like Jerry and Doyle, just being like, "Could someone change the channel <laughs> just just for a minute?" Shit's good, man. <laughs> What's that chomping sound? <laughs> Well, in addition to that, Jerry was developing a pretty solid cocaine habit, but there were other resentments going the other way. See, Glenn spent his days running their label, Plan 9, while the other three misfits worked their day jobs. Jerry, Doyle, and even Robo all worked at the Kaofa family exacto knife factory, and after spending a full day on the assembly line, they didn't take too kindly to Glenn berating them for not wanting to constantly work on the label and they're off time. Yeah, Robo would be coming in after a, like a long day of working at a factory, and he just want to have a beer and watch TV. And Glenn would just be like, "No, you gotta cut and glue these, you know, sleeves together to, for all our peas." And like, Robo's like, "Come on, can I just take a break?" <laughs> yeah, and fucking, and Robo's, he's living in Glenn's basement. Yeah, you know, and he so he got the brunt of the guilt trips. You know, like Jerry and Doyle, they could just go home. But fucking Robo had to put up with him all the time. I cannot live with that guy. He is so annoying. (laughs) He is frightening. He never wears a shirt. (laughs) I knew that was quoted from another place. (laughs) You know what, Glenn? Interns. Yeah. (laughs) Pay them, but pay them very little. (laughs) And so Robo quit the band, moved back to L.A., leaving the Misfits without a drummer again. And this is sort of how the damn couldn't hold on to a bass player. You know, some bands are just cursed with never being able to hold on to a certain instrument. But Danzig took advantage of Robo's sudden departure by canceling upcoming Misfit states to work on an entirely new project. After abandoning a punk supergroup idea... Danzig began to put together what would eventually become Sam Hain. Sawin. 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 So. I don't know who calls it that. I don't know. <laughs> Let the day begin. Let the horror start. Let the furious swim. Let the skies go fly. Let the day begin. Let the fun begin. Let the day begin, let the man of the spin, let the day begin. Yeah, here we're time, it's a hurt. So let's let the day begin. 
that band also went through a lot of lineup changes. <laughs> Quite a bit. But one that kind of stayed for a while was Erie Vaughn. Yeah. You know, from Rosemary's Babies. And like, because Glenn wanted him in the Misfits, you know, before. Uh, but, you know, he, Erie Vaughn is like, I don't know. I, I should keep working on Rosemary's Babies. Yeah. And also, I'm like 17. <laughs> But before Sam Hain or Sawin, whatever, whatever I call it Sam Hain. Yeah, everyone calls it Sam Hain. If you want to call, it, if you want to be super particular and call it Sawin, you can. Yes. Before they could truly become Glenn Danzig's number one project, the Misfits had to die. <laughs> the Misfits must, must die. die. To play drums for the last few gigs, they chose Brian Damage Keats without telling him that the Misfits were on their last legs. Yeah, Brian got a call from Glenn. He's like, hey, do you want to come audition and be like the drummer in the Misfits? Come to New Jersey. And Brian's like, great, fuck, I'm in San Francisco. Because <laughs> he was living there. He was playing with a band called Verbal Abuse. So mm -hmm. he, Brian immediately knew this was a great opportunity. So he said, yeah, he dropped everything. He moved back to New York. He went to Lodi to meet with the guys. They, they did like a little audition slash rehearsal there. Uh, just less than two weeks before the next show. And uh, the crazy thing is that they probably could have gotten Arthur Googie instead. Yeah. But the thing is, is that uh, Arthur Googie was like, hey, you know what? I've heard this before. I want to get paid up front. Uh. And Glenn's like, no, then forget it. It happens all the time. I think uh, fucking Johnny Ramone did the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, no, we're not going to pay him up front. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, never, I'm never playing with him again. Yeah. And the guys in the Misfits, like, they knew... The band was ending. They all knew that it was ending. They all had a feeling. Danzig was had one foot out the door. There was a feeling in the air. Yeah, it's it, like if you watch a marriage story, uh -huh. it's kind of... <laughs> it's part of those scenes are very much like that. Yeah, uh, but they didn't tell Brian that. Like, they, as far as he knew, like, he was fucking in the misfits now. So, after just one rehearsal, the band drove from New Jersey to Detroit for what would be the last show with the original lineup, although they didn't know it at the time. Uh, considering the existing tensions in the band, the disaster that was Halloween 1983 was not something from which the band could recover. No. Uh, so, the band with their new drummer, Brian, uh, they drove 10 hours to Detroit to perform at Greystone Hall. And at that show, that was uh, October 29th, 1983, the kid got too nervous. You know, poor Brian. Like, he he was just kind of like, this is the first show with the Misfits. This is crazy. You said so, one rehearsal. So, he started drinking at the bar before they were going to go on. Yeah. And just drinking a lot more than he should have. Because I understand maybe sometimes you need a, like a beer or something like that. Or maybe a quick shot. But that's it. Yeah. And you got to keep it at that. And he's also hanging out with Necros too. Yes. Because like Necros well, is also. <laughs> like, but Necros knows what the, they know what the fuck they're doing. Uh, and he's uh, drinking more and drinking more and drinking more. And by the time it comes to get on stage. He just couldn't keep a beat. He couldn't even keep a fucking beat. He couldn't even fucking. He could could not do it. Too drunk to do it. Too yeah. drunk to fucking. Because by this point, like, you've heard the how fast the Misfits were fucking playing at that time. And uh, let me tell you from a fucking drummer's perspective, that is tough. That takes insane concentration to play that fast and to keep it going for that long. Uh, and drinking and hardcore drumming do not mix very well. No. I mean. Straight edge. There's a whole straight edge thing. Because we got to focus. There's a whole thing. Yeah, there's a whole thing about it. Uh, so, yeah, the, you know, it did not go well. It was like, I think, like, just a song. And you could see it on uh, YouTube. I watched, like, most of it. Uh, Doyle just tapped the kid on the shoulder and said, 
get backstage. You're out. Yeah. Kind of like the coach telling the guy, (laughs) you're out. You're out of here. Uh, So poor guy Brian just sat in the green room while they used a drummer from the Necros. Yeah. Todd Swalla. Todd Swalla, who already played a few gigs with the Misfits. He knew the songs. Yeah, and Jerry said that he and Doyle uh, were kind of like really relieved that Todd Swalla came in. And they, they did put on a good show, but after a while, they were just very uh, just tired Yeah. Uh, of this all this bullshit. I think they were just resentful towards Glenn because Glenn was like, I'll get the drummer. You know, I'll take care of it because I don't want Arthur Googie. So it was just a fight of uh, that whole thing. So Jerry and Doyle kind of like leaned against their amps and just played the show. This autopilot. They were just finishing the set. Like, just get this done. And that's what happened. Glenn did actually yell into the mic, this is our last show ever. Yeah. Everyone was just so frustrated. And also because Glenn didn't want to admit that he was wrong. (laughs) That he picked this guy, this random guy, instead of picking somebody you would know. Yeah, picked him and picked him at the last minute, right before the fucking show. And uh, so the guys, after the show, they spent the night at Russ Gibbs' place. Russ Gibb being uh, from the Stooges series, right? Yes, yeah. He uh, he ran the Grandy Ballroom. Uh, uh, remember, we talked about him a lot. He was a radio DJ. He did the whole Paul is dead mm-hmm. uh, thing. Yeah. He's like, I'm sorry. I didn't know it would really <laughs> escalate that much. Wow. Yeah. People are talking about it 50 years later. <laughs> and also, you know, in his later years, he did this thing called Back Porch Video where he would teach, like, kids, like, you know, a lot of AV club kids, you know, teach yeah. them, uh, like, the ropes and stuff. He was, like, a really good guy and uh so they spent the night at russ gibbs place and the next morning russ's mom is like making the guys breakfast and scrambled eggs and sausage like who wants more eggs (laughs) me mrs gibbs thank you and brian's just sitting there everyone's hungover uh brian's sitting there like i'm sorry dude i'm sorry and glenn's like don't talk to me (laughs) (laughs) you know like even glenn like wanted to just leave him there it's like just leave him here but you know they they all drove back Ten hours Ten from Detroit hours. Yeah. to New Jersey. And they just pretty much, they pretended that Brian didn't exist. Yeah. Glenn sat in the back with Brian. <laughs> just sitting there. While Her fucking drummer, you sit with him. <laughs> and then Jerry and Doyle were in the front. And they were just like, so, check out the game the other night? Yeah. And luckily, they know a lot about football. Yeah. Because <laughs> they kept that conversation going for hours. Hours and hours. And the thing about Brian Keats is that he was, a lot of his friends said he was a good guy. He passed away at a young age of 46. Oh, wow. Just like 10 years ago, so... I mean, but he did do a lot of drumming since then. So yeah. he, uh, he, it's not like he walked away completely. No. And that was the end of the original lineup for the Misfits. That was how it fucking ended. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! 
the most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Now, even though the Misfits were over and done with, or at least in that iteration, the band still had all the songs they'd recorded in 1981 and 1982. So at the end of 1983, they finally released Earth AD to a mixed reception. See, the punk kids didn't like it because the Misfits got rid of the camp, aka what made them fun in the first place. Sure, Last Caress is fucking great, but it needs the balance of songs like Teenagers from Mars and Astro Zombies, just like Texas Chainsaw Massacre needs Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. You know, right. like uh, Hostel One needs Hostel Two. Yeah, and you know, Last House on the Left needs Slumber Party Massacre Two. Like it's yeah. like these. It has to be balanced out. You know, like it has to be. Otherwise, it's just not as much fun. But the metal kids, who always took themselves a little more seriously, absolutely loved Earth AD. And they especially loved the single that followed, which was a fitting final release. That song, the last released with Danzig as lead singer, was Die, Die, My Darling. It's so good. It's just as Jerry only was getting really good at pace. (laughs) (laughs) What timing. What timing. So after the final single, Glenn Danzig focused on Sam Hain and moved more into the world of metal, eventually releasing a near top 40 hit with his band, which was appropriately titled Danzig, in 1993. That song was... Mother! (laughs) Mother... Tell your children not to walk my way Tell your children not to hear my words What they mean, what they say Mother Mother Can you keep them in the dark for life? Can you have a breath of wedding world?
I have a confession to make. What? I uh, when you were at the grocery store last week. Uh huh. I put on mother. Uh huh. About twenty times. <laughs> and oh, the whole act out. <laughs> Everything, all over, God. everywhere. Well, you do when I'm not home. That. <laughs> Our dog Georgie hid under the bed because she was worried about me. Well, throughout the 80s and 90s, Glenn and his former bandmates would talk shit and butt heads, sometimes legally. In 1985, Danzig released a compilation of Misfits tracks through Caroline Records, but neglected to involve the Misfits. Oh, right. The actual, the rest of the band. The rest of the, the band, the yeah. Band. <laughs> Yeah, uh, they had uh, Legacy of Brutality came out, and it was a lot of the Static Age recording sessions that came out. But he did do a lot of remixing. <laughs> That's the thing. And he also re-recorded a lot of the guitar parts. And he didn't credit anyone but himself. Yep. In fact, even now on Spotify, it says The Misfits, comma, Glenn Danzig on Legacy of Brutality. Well, I guess we'll give us both credit. <laughs> I get double credit. Is that how that works? <laughs> Now, at first, Jerry just sort of ignored Danzig's, let's say, reimagining of all the songs that they'd worked on over the years. Right. But when Metallica released the 598 EP in 1987, which featured... It's not $5.98? Yeah, $5.98. I mean, it's technically the $5.98 EP because it was... The, there's a whole thing. They called it the $5.98 EP, so record stores would be forced to sell it at $5.98. Like, that's what how much they wanted to charge. There's a, it's a whole thing. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry I brought it up. <laughs> but that EP featured two Misfits songs. And the Misfits started getting their due. I got something to say. I killed your baby today. Metallica. That, it's really good, but it's not the same, but it's still really good. <laughs> it's not the same. No, it's not the same, but it's how I got into the fucking Misfits. Because of Metallica? Yeah, because of Metallica. Because of uh, their cover of Last Crest. I got a bootleg copy of the fine 598 EP. I got a bootleg CD copy when I was, I don't know, like 12 or 13 or something like that. That's how I discovered the Misfits. That's uh, it. Nice. I discovered the Misfits in college, and I remember... Uh, what years ago when you and I were just at a bar it was like one of our first dates it was like maybe a couple of weeks into going out or something and we were playing with a jukebox and then Last Caress we played Last Caress and uh, you look at me and you're like are you a Misfits fan? I'm like oh yeah I really like the song <laughs> and then we both start singing I killed your baby today and then that was it that, that was the it the rest was history yeah the rest of it. and now we're married yes <laughs> now you're my wife I am <laughs> Yeah, so they covered Last Caress, they covered Green Hell. Uh, suddenly new fans are emerging to check out the Misfits, which was great. But Jerry also noticed that he wasn't getting any paychecks. None whatsoever. We're the royalties for these covers, you know? We're the royalties for everything, for Legacy, Legacy of Brutality that came out in 1987. 
So Jerry calls up Glenn and asked about it. Glenn said, all right, you know what? I have sold credit for these songs, but I'll give you guys, Jerry and Doyle, I'll give you guys $13,000. How's that? And they're like, no. <laughs> Are you kidding me? You know how much money we pumped into this? How how hard we worked in this for years? Yeah. And 19, by 1987, like Metallica is gigantic. Like they yeah. are huge fucking bad. They're not quite as big as they were by the time the Black Album came out, but they're still fucking huge. Yeah, I mean, they should get a big check, like a, one of the giant. <laughs> <laughs> but so they knew that Glenn was making a lot more money. So they went back and they said, no, we want $250,000, a quarter of a million dollars, which Glenn most likely choked on a sandwich when he heard that <laughs> and said, no. And so that began the lawsuits. Like, that began many years of litigation between Jerry Only and Doyle and Glenn Danzig. And also Bobby Steele sometimes, and also Arthur Googie sometimes. Yeah, we'll get into it. Yep. Now, with Samhain, Danzig had gone full-on pagan, or at least that's what he presented to the public. Some people say it's like, well, yeah, he, he did and he didn't. But perhaps to counter that, Jerry and Doyle went the other way and started a Viking-themed Christian metal band... Called Christ the Conqueror, spelled with a K and R, a Y and S and a T. <laughs> then we were the new originals. <laughs> this is like seed for the spinal tip. Because, uh, well, Jerry and Doyle, like you said, they wanted to do something different from the Misfits, kind of like take off the shroud mm -hmm. of the Misfits and have their own identity. And Jeff Soto, who sang for Christ the Conqueror, he said, like, these guys just wanted more positive energy, you know, with like a sci-fi comic book edge to it, like a heavy metal comic book. Yeah. It's like, that sounds like a cool idea. It sounds like a great idea. I would have loved to have heard it. Yeah. I mean, well, executed <laughs> is, a, is a little different when you execute it. Yeah. Weird. Um, but the thing is, like, when they got Jeff Soto to do it, uh, the famous Jeff Soto, uh, he wasn't really like into it musically. But they kept saying, hey, uh, we'll just give you a lot of good money for these studio recordings. And Jeff's like, oh, all right, I'll just go in there. And he said, like, they were good guys, the nicest guys. They're even friends. They're yeah. still friends. Still friends, yeah. But at the end of the day, it just wasn't for him. It wasn't for Jeff. You know, uh, it was the whole thing. It's like, why? I don't want to put on, like, a Viking outfit. You know, and Jerry calling himself Macavius Christ, <laughs> Mo the Great. <laughs> What, what, why, why are we doing this? He's like, you are Christ the Conqueror. <laughs> now put on this heavy metal steel helmet. <laughs> uh, yeah, I just wanted to play some music. Yeah. But yeah, they did record uh, Deliver Us from Evil, the EP, uh, that was eventually released in 1990. Yeah. But not when they were recording it back then. Like, it was eventually released, yes. It took a few years. It took a while. Yeah, it was It was a lot of, because, you know, the Misfits are done. So Jerry and Doyle, they're working at the factory. They're also working out. They're practicing a lot. So they're really just kind of hiding out in New Jersey, being like, we got to get back to this eventually. It, it took a few years. It yeah. took many years. Many, many years. Oh, yeah. Let's hear Christ the Conqueror. Yeah, why not? <laughs>
Yeah. It's solid. Yeah, it has legs. Yeah, it absolutely does. Uh, just as Danzig, the band, was making waves with Mother, the only rock band in the world bigger than Metallica, Guns N' Roses, also covered the Misfits. The song was from the same album that put money into the pockets of the Dead Boys, the New York Dolls, the Stooges, and the Damned. That was the Spaghetti Incident. And knowing GNR as well as I do, it is no surprise at all which song they covered. Yeah, Duff McKagan. I mean, he yeah, did, yeah, he did yeah. pretty good. Yeah, he pretty, did all pretty. That right. wasn't Axel. It was Duff. Yeah, but you know, Duff had his moments. <laughs> Can't have a drop of alcohol or else he'll die. Now. Wow. Yeah. Oh well, you, you yeah. know. <laughs> I guess you had as much as you can in a lifetime. You're done. Now, even though the Spaghetti Incident was the lowest-selling album of all the Guns N' Roses releases with Axel Slash and Duff, it still went platinum, and the Misfits were exposed to a global audience and global royalties. As such, the lawsuits got a little more serious, and the Misfits ended up being a part of a million-dollar deal. You ready? Ready. All right, um, let's do this. Let's fucking get into this bullshit. In and out. In and out. Real quick. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like, uh, we got to stop at the bank for a second. You know, real fast. Uh, uh, my dealer is over there. Oh, fuck. This is going to be really quick. Ready? September 1992. Jerry Doyle, Frenchie Cuomo, Mr. Jim, Robo sued Glenn because they said he was making money off their old band now that the Misfits were getting hugely popular, like you said. Yeah, first Metallica, then Guns N' Roses. Metallica was okay, but Guns N' Roses, that was, whoa, whoa now that's some money. That 1992 lawsuit led to the 1994 agreement in which they agreed to the sale of the master recordings and the copyrights to Caroline Records for $1.5 million dollars. That $1.5 million would be divided up with the guys, including Glenn. Then all future royalties, you know, the money that they get from Caroline Records from selling their music and everything, right. would be split between Glenn and the rest of the guys. The rest of the guys got 60%, while Glenn would get 40%. Okay. All right, so the rest of the guys, they got their cut from that 60%, but to agree on that cut, they made a new agreement with Jerry and Doyle. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> Mr. Jim, Robo, Franche, they waived any rights to the Misfits name since they're not in the band anymore and they haven't been in a while, so mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. They can't perform as the Misfits or build themselves as such. Fine. So, all good. Fair enough. They, but they also don't have rights to the merch, so they can't make a deal with Foot Locker and sell, like, you know, Misfits soccer shoes. <laughs> but if their faces or likeness were on one, like on a soccer shoe, <laughs> they would get paid a cut. Right. Uh, so, like, yeah, in Mr. Jim's lunchbox, Mr. Jim would get a cut. <laughs> you know, at Target. <laughs> Jerry and Doyle would share ownership of the name and trademarks of the Misfits, like the artwork, logo from all their classic Misfits era, mm -hmm. with Glenn, which means they're allowed to use it and take all the profits from it each. So... Jerry and Doyle sell a Misfits Earth AD baby bib. They get get all the profits from that baby bib. Glenn sells a Misfits can opener. He gets all the money for himself. 
<laughs> this is how I understand. Hey, and you know what? You're really not that far off from what they actually sell. <laughs> Any live shows as a Misfits from then on would be paid to the guys. Like when Jerry... The, guy, the guys meaning Jerry and yeah, Doyle. Yeah, like when Jerry started uh, the Misfits in 1995. Yep. Uh, Glenn wouldn't get any money from those live shows because he's not playing them. He's not. He has nothing to do with that. Fair enough. But they had to say it was the Misfits without Glenn for the next two years until people started getting used to the fact that Glenn was not coming to Misfits shows. Ah, uh, I got you. So the Misfits publishing rights in the songs were owned by Glenn only. I mean, he was the songwriter. Yeah. So only he could let like Last Caress be played on a Volvo commercial if he wanted to. <laughs> I got something to say. I bought a Volvo today. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't matter much to me as long as it's red. I don't like white cars. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so on and so forth. Uh, also, there's more like when Bobby Steele sued later on, uh, but we don't really need to get in the weeds too much. That was uh, 2012 time. Uh, but at this, this is how it stood in 1995. Yeah. Woo! We did it! <laughs> you did, did it. And then thanks to your brother for helping us out with that. Yeah. Thanks to my brother, Alec, who's a lawyer who uh, actually got a lot of documents together for me, highlighted a few things. <laughs> and then I sent him, is this right? And he's like, yeah, that seems to be generally correct. <laughs> Thank you, Alec. Thank you, Alec. And so, with the rights firmly in their possession, Jerry and Doyle decided it was time for a new Misfits with a new drummer and a new singer, because it would still be decades before everything got sorted out with Glenn. For drums, they brought in David Calabrese, a.k.a. No, the Calabrese, Calabrese. family. <laughs> the family, you know. Yeah, a.k.a. Dr. Chud who was an old friend that the Kaafa brothers appropriately ran into at a funeral and said, hey, you want to be in the Misfits? It's like, what, are, what have you been up to lately? <laughs> For a vocalist, the Misfits brought in a 20-year-old kid who ended up introducing a Which Singer is Better controversy that could only be compared to the fucking David Lee Roth versus Sammy Hagar argument. The who's the better one? You know, it's like, it's very much... A matter of preference. Oh, yes. I did. This is a thing that, that goes on forever. And you know what? It Just like what you like. Yeah, just like what you like. <laughs> yeah. Still goes on today. Do not look at fucking YouTube comments on Misfits songs. <laughs> no. Jesus, this is all they talk about. <laughs> well, the new lead singer of the Misfits was Michael Emanuel, but he would later be better known as Michael Graves. And while the Misfits with Michael Graves is barely recognizable as the Misfits, their comeback it has a certain charm of all of its own. I like Michael Graves' era. Yeah. I mean, I like it. Yeah. It's not the same, but I like it. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, if you, if you, yeah, if you if like Murder City Doubles yeah. and all that stuff. I, I do. <laughs> Nothing wrong. Nothing wrong at all. Yeah, let's listen to it.
I really like that song. It's a, yeah, it's a fun. It's a good song. But I, I like that song too. But it's different. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's it's a song you and different. I can slow dance to. Of course, it's, yeah. That's a misfit. Yeah. You can slow dance to a song. Wow. Yeah, so Michael Graves uh, from Teaneck, New Jersey. There's, they're all from New Jersey. All of them from New Jersey. Uh, so he auditioned, and it, it took a while. It took like a year for them to finally like be like, all right, you know what? Maybe we'll, we'll have you on. Because before then, they wanted... Uh, Pete Steele from Typo Negative. Well, they actually ha- held a lot of auditions. Yeah. They wanted Dave Vanian from The Damned. I mean, that would have been really cool. That would have been cool, yeah. Uh, but, you know, I, I guess Dave Vanian's like, I don't want to live in New Jersey, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> and please. We have an old Jersey. Please, it's Peter Steele. Show the respect. Really? <laughs> Peter Steele. <laughs> so, uh, so like, Peter Steele comes in. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and and the thing is, is that Michael Graves is, like, kind of helping out sing the songs. He's like, okay, you know, like, let me show you how it goes. Uh, he needs to learn the songs. And after a little while, Michael's teaching Pete Steele. Michael's teaching Peter Steele <laughs> the songs. And... Peter stops and says, this is your singer. Yeah. Not me. This guy. He can sing it better than me. So that's how Michael Graves became the lead singer of the Misfits. But on the other hand, man, I would have loved to hear Peter still sing with the fucking Misfits. Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) And for the following 20 years or so, the Misfits, led by Jerry Only, would take pot shots at Glenn Danzig. And Glenn Danzig would take pot shots at the Misfits, led by Jerry Only. And while Danzig was just fine being super serious, Jerry Only heavily leaned into the camp. In 1999, the Misfits briefly joined the wrestling world, partnering with a Halloween-themed WCW wrestler named Vampiro. This clip we're about to play is how the Misfits were introduced into the wrestling world, wandering out to the ring in the middle of a match. So I go this way? (laughs) Oh, stage left. <laughs> Look at those kids. Look at how they're dressed. <laughs> Classic 1999 wrestling. Oh, wow. The myths. Oh, my God. The, look at that. Baby, they're going to be dressed as uh, as humans for uh, for Halloween. Oh, God. It's so funny. They're like, oh, they look so weird. It's like, you're in wrestling. <laughs> well, they're the announcers. They're wearing bow ties. They're used to this. <laughs> And the Misfits, they did, you know, they were actually in the WCW for a while. Like, they did a, uh, like, I think Doyle did a cage match with Dr. Death. And, you know, they poured, bar- the Misfits poured barbecue sauce all over Dr. Death's manager. It was a whole thing. Because, uh, <laughs> you know, Doyle and, Doyle's fucking huge. Doyle yeah. is the size of a wrestler. Like, he was holding his own. You know, and Jerry's pretty fucking big, too. And Michael Graves is also, like, they all look like wrestlers. They're big fucking guys. <laughs> Guys. But things got a little dicey when Doyle got involved with Macho Man Randy Savage's girlfriend. Apparently, when Savage found out about this, he chartered a jet to a misfit show in New Orleans, used his fame to get past the security guards, and shotgun beers backstage while he waited for Doyle to finish the show. Now, Doyle, 
he looked over in the wings and saw Macho Man Randy Savage and fucking hightailed it through the crowd. <laughs> <laughs> like, he did not want to fight, like, have a real fight with do Macho I, Man Randy Savage. Do I go this way? <laughs> <laughs> he escaped out the front door. Oh, shit. But fucking, but Michael Gray's like, oh, he doesn't have a problem with me. I can just go backstage. Nope. Not the not how it went down. Fucking Macho Man grabbed Michael Graves, shoved him against a wall, and just started screaming, "Where's Dooley?" <laughs> like over and over again. <laughs> and Chris is like, "Oh no, man! You fucking left. I don't know where he is. You got no problem with me, Macho Man? Just let me go, Macho Man." <laughs> Finally, Macho Man let him go. And then- after putting him in the toilet. <laughs> I'm just making that up now, but who knows? Maybe. And you know, but the Misfits—they continued along in the WCW for a while. Jerry got super into it. He started challenging other wrestlers to like backstage matches. He would challenge Bill Goldberg, who's Bill Goldberg. Do you ever see Santa Slay? That might be yeah. Your... Oh yeah, I love I love Santa. Slay. Yeah, yeah, I figured that's it. that guy. Oh, that guy. Yeah, that guy. Oh wow. Yeah. Not Santa. <laughs> you would challenge Goldberg to backstage wrestling matches, and they're just like, nah. I don't I don't want to do that. And Jerry got so into wrestling that like the Misfits like very briefly considered like hiring Vampiro as their new bass player. Uh, But then the Misfits got kicked out of the WCW when uh, Jerry only tried forming a union for the wrestlers, which is about the biggest no, no when it comes to being in the wrestling world. They still to this day are trying to unionize. And if you try, you get blacklisted. Oh, like Jerry. Like Jerry. Oh. Yep, they're never going back to wrestling. Also, because they're just too they're old. They're old. <laughs> I mean, not old, but older. Not old. They're, they're, they're too old for wrestling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. But meanwhile, Glenn Danzig was getting roasted in Spin Magazine by, of all people, Beck. As do I. Huge Beck fan, especially that album. Mellow Gold is much more than Loser, trust me. <laughs> so Beck said in an interview, uh, he, you know, for Spin Magazine, he's like driving around through L.A. and he's just kind of just taking in the sights. Mm-hmm. And he's like... He's driving around Los Feliz, which is the neighborhood that he lives in. He's like, everything's going upscale around here, you know, like, oh, the turn. <laughs> Except for Glenn Danzig's house. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he uh, he's got a, a stack of bricks there, and he's it's been there for eight years. <laughs> and then Beck said, "I think it's a statement." <laughs> and Glenn responded to, "Yeah, it's a fucking statement." <laughs> he got so mad. It's a statement. I ain't Beck, and I ain't going upscale. How's that? <laughs> Someone hold me back. <laughs> Come on, man, it's Beck. <laughs> and that was a uh, th- yeah, that was an interview with Nardwar, uh, and he asked like Glenn, he's like. Is there really a pile of bricks outside your house? And Glenn says, like, yeah, there sure is. And it's not going 
anywhere. <laughs> was that the same Nardwar interview where uh, Nardwar, Nardwar, for those of you who don't know, is a guy out of Vancouver that, like, some, he just, he, let's say, asks the hard questions yes. uh, with musicians. Like, he just, he finds out very uh, personal things about musicians and then asks them about it. Some people respond to it, some people don't. No. Danzig didn't. And, was that the same interview that uh, Nardwar asked a question and the uh, uh, answer was silence? Silence. Silence. <laughs> Phone clicking. Well, actually, the funny thing is I read that and I thought that was hilarious. And then I read the second part. It was like, actually, Glenn called back saying, I think we got disconnected. Can I call you back later? <laughs> so, well, still. Yeah, still. A few years later... Danzig was publicly embarrassed again when he got punched by a member of a band called the Northside Kings, which Danzig called a setup because the whole thing was caught on camera for some reason. It was not a setup. They were they were already being followed by uh, one of their buddies who were just filming them the whole time. Okay, I gotta get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, go ahead. Tell tell the story. Tell the story, and then we'll play. Th- and then we'll play uh, the audio uh, yeah. from the footage. Okay, so that was uh, July 2004 in Tuba City, Arizona. And it was a big show. Like, over 10 bands were playing, and, you know, with uh, Glenn's band Danzig headlining. Uh, but the sound checks were getting pushed further and further back, which led to the show being delayed, which meant some of the bands had to get cut, which included Northside Kings, who had driven six hours to play that night yeah. and waited and waited all night. So once they got there, they found out that, all right, Danzig's going to go on, uh, even though he's headlining, he's going to go on right now at 10, but you guys can go on afterwards. And don't worry, Glenn is going to introduce the band after and encourage people to stay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Great. So they waited. Uh, but after Danzig finished his set, the crew started breaking down the stage. They were done. So Danny Marianino from you know Northside Kings, mm-hmm. he went up to Glenn. He was complaining. He's like, "Hey, what what's this? Oh, we're we gonna get cut. We we were told that we were gonna play, you know." And Glenn's like signing autographs. He got pissed. He shoved Danny and said, "Fuck you, motherfucker!" So Danny just punched him. Yep. And yeah, it's all there. It's all on video. It's all over YouTube. It went viral like. Almost immediately. Danny even wrote a book called Don't Ever Punch a Rock Star years later. (laughs) No, it was immediate. Like the Northside Kings knew immediately what they had. It was a fucking smack. Yeah, well, it's hard to see from that angle, but it's obvious that he he definitely punched him to the ground. But as how hard or he beat him up or anything, I'm not sure. He was probably a little bloody. Some people said afterwards that they had to help uh, Glenn up and everything. Mean, Glenn was like what in his late forties at this point. Yeah, like almost and the, fifty. And the dude from Northside Kings is gigantic. Yes, he's, he's fucking huge. Much bigger than Glenn. Yeah, I mean, well, cute. Yeah, I mean, he's much bigger than Glenn. Yeah, so it is uh, definitely. Yeah, I would have gone down. Yeah, me too. <laughs> of course, right. I wouldn't be shoving anyone. No, I wouldn't be shoving anyone either because the guy from Northside Kings was being pretty reasonable, like fairly reasonable, but it just got out of control uh, real fucking fast. And Danzig, of course, had many things. That, like he yeah, laughs, at, he kind of laughed it off. You know, uh, it's like, I let him punch me. I let him punch me. Yeah, he, yeah. Then a year later, a crazed fan tried breaking into Danzig's home on Halloween, and after being chased off. Sky allegedly left behind a backpack full of gay porn with Glenn's head pasted on the images and a note in his backpack that said, Kill Danzig, October 31st, over and over and over again. However, Jerry Only's misfits weren't doing much better. 
And by 2000, Michael Graves was getting tired of Jerry Only constantly dangling the threat of bringing back Glenn as lead singer, and Graves quit on stage during a show in Florida. After that, Glenn, Jerry, and Doyle spent almost two decades dancing around a reunion while Jerry took over on vocals for live performances for a number of years, as well as for a covers album. Oh, that's what we're going to call it? <laughs> a covers album? That one project? Yes, yes. Why not? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Finally, though, Danzig and Jerry agreed to put aside their differences in 2016 for two shows at Riot Fests in Denver and Chicago. But according to some sources, this reunion was... As it is with many things involving the Misfits post-1983, a legal issue. Well, actually, it kind of worked out in a way because Jerry and Doyle went in to meet with Glenn to settle like more legal disputes. Uh, so they walk in, they close the doors, and then, and then it goes like, Oop, one hour later. They open the doors, and they already had a plan for a reunion show. <laughs> just patting themselves on the back. Yeah. There we go. They got Dave Lombardo from Sl Slayer as their drummer. Really fucking cool. Mm -hmm. And AC Slate as uh, the second guitarist. And they played at Riot Fest 2016. They did a couple shows in 2017, uh, 2018. Like, throughout the years, they did a few more shows. And what came out, recently is the fact that they did those shows because within their agreement uh they agreed to do uh 10 shows to kind of settle everything it's like all right we'll just do these shows we'll make a boat boatload of money and mm -hmm. there we go now i don't owe you nothing yeah their uh show their last show here in new york was at madison square garden yeah you know the misfits and the damned yeah like, we missed that we missed that we unfortunately did we were out of town we were out of town do, yeah do. <laughs> yeah we unfortunately yeah we made plans to go out of town before the show was announced but anyway uh you know the misfits you know speaking of the money and speaking of the uh lawsuits and all that shit like the misfits have gotten a lot of shit over the years for how much merch they have and how many times the crimson ghost has been put on fucking shoes and t-shirts and fucking anything anything they want to sell they will sell you know, and because, you know, the Misfits, it's kind of a costume. A lot of people call them the punk rock kiss. Like, that is a criticism that has been leveled against them time and time again. But no matter what the Misfits became, whether you consider them a punk rock version of kiss, or you hate everything about Glenn Danzig as a person, or you just don't get what the fuss is all about, the band still made their mark on the music world. Sure. Horror punk might not be the biggest genre in the world, but the Misfits brought horror into music in a way that was unique and inspiring to a lot of people, paving the way for bands that, you know, at least we personally love, like the aforementioned Gore on your part, Carolina. Yeah, Gore! <laughs> and White Zombie on mine. Now, no one is saying that White Zombie or Gore changed the world, but goddammit, they were fun. And as we said with The Damned, fun bands are just as necessary to the history of music as anything else. And no matter how serious Glenn Danzig is, the music of the Misfits is still fun. If you're into that sort of thing. And they inspired a lot of bands to do the same. But even besides that, the Misfits were also one of the earliest DIY punk bands who did shit their own way in every respect, for good or ill. At least in the beginning, before very large amounts of money got involved from outside sources. But that was good. I like how they did that. I like how they, they put a project together. They they got tools. They got scissors and tape. Yeah. Like, they started from the bottom. They really did. And they worked their way through it the whole way. Even though they did get help, fuck, they paid that help back tenfold. 
And yes, some punk originators like Ian MacKay of Minor Threat have gone on record many times to say that the Misfits were always full of shit because they were, in effect, playing characters and always chasing the dollar. But unlike bands like Minor Threat, the Misfits did not do the whole DIY thing out of principle. They did it because that was the only way they could make a living doing what they loved to do, which makes it hard to hold them to Minor Threat standards. They never pretended to be anything else. And some might say that disqualifies them from being considered a great punk band. And if that's your opinion, then fair enough. I'm not going to argue with you. But even so, when it comes down to just pure songs, it's hard to deny the Misfits their place in punk rock history. There you go. There you go. (laughs) You're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. There you go. And that's our series on the Misfits. We did it. We did it. We did it. We did it. Oh, my gosh. Coming up next... The Slits. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. It was, this is so much fun. Just, just you know, and there is so much more, as we said in the in the last episode, is that there there's a ton of sources if you want to check out a lot more stuff. I mean, we had to cover over 35 years of a career. So, yeah. I mean, like, there is a lot more. If you just want to check out their music uh, or or the funny stories of who's punching who, if, you, <laughs> if that's really what you want to do. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Go, go read this music. Uh, leave Stains. Uh, go listen to the Misfits albums on Spotify. Fuck, go buy the go buy some records. Like, go buy some Misfits records. You know, I mean, I, they don't really need help on like go buy Misfits merch. Uh, <laughs> like, they don't really need help on that uh, on that front. But yeah, support support the band, support uh, the people who uh, gave us the sources uh, that we used uh, for this show. And uh, you know, thank you as always for listening. Yeah. And to take us out on this, you know, usually we do like you know the band of the week. Uh, but while we were in the middle of writing this episode. Uh, Joey Image. He uh, passed away. He passed away. He yeah. passed away of uh, they, but pretty, pretty liver cancer yeah. is what everyone's yeah. he, saying. He was sick for many years. Yeah, he was sick for a long time. Uh, so what we're going to go out on is a show from 2000 uh, in which uh, Joey Image played with Jerry and Doyle. Uh, so yeah, enjoy this, ladies and gentlemen. Horror business. And we'll see you all next week. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Hey mom, 
First things first, thank you. It's my one-year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, Mom. Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. The legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.